0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm
1: Joshua. And I'm Hugh. You're listening to The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. Today, we're covering a lot of different regions around the world, from the Middle East to the Pacific region.
0: Yeah, we've got lots to talk about, so let's get into it. We've seen uh, a campaign uh, led by uh, Saudi Arabia Uh, that has also contributed to what is by uh, many estimates
1: the worst humanitarian crisis uh, in the world today. Well, those are the remarks of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who has recently begun initiating President Biden's new foreign policy agenda in the Middle East. Now, a particular area that Secretary Blinken has been paying attention to has been the United States' involvement in a long-standing war in Yemen. Just last month, the Biden administration ended all U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition, which is currently propping up the internationally recognized government in Yemen. That coalition has been fighting against an organization known as the Houthis since 2015, when Houthi militias seized the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, alongside many other parts of the country. That means the conflict is technically a civil war that's being fought between different Yemeni groups, although of the Houthis being Shia Muslims, they've enjoyed close support from Saudi Arabia's arch-rival Iran. That support has in turn led Saudi Arabia to assemble a coalition of anti-Iranian states, including many Arab nations and several Western powers to drive the Iranian backed Houthis out of Sana'a and restore the internationally recognized government to power. Now, fighting between the Houthis and the Saudi coalition began in 2015, and it's still ongoing six years later in 2021. So it's clear that Riyadh has failed to secure victory over the rebels. But as the humanitarian situation continues to spiral, disappointingly, it looks like fighting has only grown more intense in the last few weeks.
0: Yeah, this is something that we covered in the Christmas special last year. And it's really sad to hear that the fighting has only got worse since then, especially from a humanitarian point of view. So what's changed on the ground in the last two, three months?
1: Well, ironically, the fighting has actually been intensified by the fact that the US is now taking steps towards peace. As I mentioned earlier, Washington has suspended all support for the Saudi-led coalition, which previously included military training, intelligence and logistics support as well as arms sales and assistance in enforcing a full maritime blockade against the Houthis.
0: That's a Biden reversal of the Trump policy,
1: is it? It really is. Trump was very much a supporter of the war. Uh, He was frustrated by how long it took, but he was supportive of the effort as a whole. President Trump has vetoed Congress's attempt to end U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. So now Washington's primary motivation is cutting back that support which has been uh, the source of an awful humanitarian situation in Yemen, which has come as a result of the Saudi-led blockade targeting Houthi-controlled areas. Tens of thousands of Yemeni civilians have died due to the conflict, with millions displaced and millions more facing severe food shortages. U.S. Special Envoy to Yemen, Timothy Lenderking, has already made two trips to the region as he seeks to bring about consensus for a ceasefire in the country. And that means that the U.S. is now meaningfully supporting the United Nations' long-standing bid to end the war in Yemen after having directly fueled the violence for the past five years. The trick, however, has been that with a ceasefire now on the cards, both sides in Yemen are pushing as hard as they can to gain the upper hands before negotiations really kick in.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's lots of political alliances and political strategies happening there, but what does it mean in practical terms for the Yemeni people?
1: Well, on the grounds, it means that the Houthis have launched a fresh offensive on a major city called Marib. The fighting is intense and the bombardment relentless as the Houthis close in on Marib. Locals say no one is safe and that's. Marib why sits at a vital juncture and it's one of the few cities that's still under full government control. But attacking Marib obviously has a dangerous impact on the local civilian population as well as internally displaced people that were taking shelter in the area. So, unfortunately, the Houthi assault is more bad news for the humanitarian situation in the country. That said, the Saudi coalition has also launched an offensive in the southern Al-Qadar area and that's created a second major front which is only way matters worse. The escalating situation has even come to affect Saudi Arabia itself with the Houthis launching missile and drone strikes on critical oil infrastructure several southern cities and even the Saudi capital of Riyadh itself. And that's shaken oil prices and is also very understandably a cause for concern among Saudi civilians.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the situation's really starting to get out of control then. So what does that mean at a humanitarian level?
1: Well, unfortunately, the U started with the United Nations World Food Programme, or WFP, warning of just how dire the situation has become in Yemen. According to the WFP, 70% of the Yemeni population requires food assistance. That's 21 million people. 50,000 are already facing famine-like conditions. 2.3 million children under five years of age are projected to face acute malnutrition And tragically, 400,000 young people are projected to die this year if they do not receive urgent treatment. Without an end to the war or a massive increase in international support for the WFP's mission to feed the Yemeni population, this dire situation looks set to continue.
0: Hugh, is there anything you and I can do, our listeners can do, to help with the situation here?
1: I'd recommend the World Food Programme's Share the Meal app, which allows you to make small donations at any time to feed malnourished people, particularly children in Yemen. Actually, it only costs $1.20 Australian to provide a meal, so it's an easy and affordable way to support starving civilians in the country.
0: I actually downloaded it, so I've already got it on my phone and intend to do that. It sounds like a really great initiative.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Good on you. Hugh, a question
0: for you and our listeners. What does the Pacific nation of Kiribati, China, a vegetable farm, climate change and the Anglican church have in common. It all sounds like a bit of a mess and trust me, it is, but the answer ultimately is they all link back to a piece of land in Fiji that's causing a lot of fuss at the moment. And this piece of land isn't that big. It's about 22 square kilometers, which for all of our Australian listeners is about the size of Melbourne airport or inner Sydney.
1: How peculiar. Uh, What's making that land so controversial?
0: Well, it all boils down to two issues, really. Who is going to use the land? And what are they going to use it for? And in order to understand those issues, we really need to go back in time by about seven years. You have probably never heard of Kiribati, but the tiny Pacific Island nation, about 3,000 kilometers southwest of Hawaii, is home to about 100,000 people, all of whom are facing a future where their island is swallowed up by rising sea levels. So in 2014, the president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, warned the world that his nation may soon be underwater because of climate change. So Kiribati is made up of about 30 little coral islands, all of which are barely above sea level. And as a result, they're extremely vulnerable to rising sea levels. And at the time, high tides were beginning to wash away houses. They were contaminating drinking water and even threatening to make all of the islands unlivable. So President Tong took an extraordinary step. For $8.7 million, he purchased from the Anglican Church a former cattle farm in Fiji. And that property was big enough to house 60 to 70,000 people. And so President Tong declared that once Kiribati was underwater, all of its people would relocate to this Fijian cattle farm and that they'd live there. And it's fair to say this decision really got the world's attention.
1: The small island nation of Kiribati has already started to feel the effects of rising sea levels, so its government has decided to buy about 6,000 acres of land in Fiji.
0: But seven years later, President Tong is no longer in power, and his successor, Teneti Mamao, has decided to change the country's approach to these rising sea levels. He, like much of Kiribati's population, is deeply religious and has said that he doesn't believe that the islands are going to sink. Your successor as president has said, we don't believe that Kiribati will sink. Our country, our beautiful lands are created by the hands of God. Scientists have also pointed towards hopeful signs that the islands are actually rising with the oceans as waves deposit new sand onto the shore. So that's led the government of Kiribati to ask, what should it do with this piece of land in Fiji?
1: Josh, I must admit, this is quite a strange problem to have. So what have they decided to do with it?
0: Well, the conclusion was recently reached that the former cattle farm would be used to grow vegetables. Currently, Kiribati has to import all of its vegetables and its obesity levels are really, really high. So it's hoped that this vegetable farm will help overcome these food shortages and will help improve the nation's health. The only problem is the land is now really overgrown with forests and it'll be quite difficult to convert it into a farm. So Kiribati has sought help. And who have they sought help from? China. Just last month, President Mamao said in an interview that China had offered technical assistance to help the land reach its potential. And the vagueness of that statement has prompted a bit of concern.
1: Right, so what are people upset about specifically with that? Well, you've got to remember
0: that this land is ultimately part of Fiji. And the Fijian government isn't too pleased at the thought of Kiribati inviting China into their country. And there's also some concerns that China's offer of assistance might be coming with strings attached. You see, Kiribati is located in a really strategic spot. It's close to Hawaii and, as a result, close to the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor. So it's really an ideal spot for China to start conducting military activities in. And there's a worry that this increasingly close relationship between Kiribati and China might actually result in Kiribati giving Beijing the blessing to engage in military activity. And adding fuel to those concerns is the fact that President Mamao was actually elected on an anti-China policy platform, but he's changed his tune and he's actually become notably pro-China after the Chinese government pledged to give Kiribati $15 million in aid. So this spat over this block of land in Fiji not only raises really interesting questions about national sovereignty and climate change and the future of this region as sea levels rise, but also about China's military intentions in the region. So definitely something to keep an eye on, I think, going forward.
1: Well, Josh, you might have seen some articles in the press lately talking about the visit by Pope Francis to Iraq. But beyond the basic glamour shots which made it to the front pages, a lot has been going on as a result of the Pope's visit to the Cradle of civilization, which I'd love to share with you.
0: Yeah, I definitely heard about it and I saw some of the images as well. It looks pretty striking. So, what makes this visit so significant?
1: There are actually several factors at play that have made the Pope's visit to Iraq so monumental. The first is simply the extent to which the visit is without precedent. Christians have lived in Iraq since the first century AD, but at no point in history has the country been visited by a pope, the highest ranking member of the Catholic Church. And yet speaking of high ranking religious figures, Pope Francis also met with Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, who is the spiritual leader of the Shia faith and the closest person Shia Islam has to a pope. It's believed that the meeting between Pope Francis and the Grand Ayatollah is the first example of the two leaders of the Catholic and Shia faiths ever meeting in history. And that's an astonishing thing to bear in mind when you remember that there are around 1.2 billion Catholics in the world and another 200 million Shias. So in other words, almost 20% of the human population was represented by two men sitting across from each other in Iraq.
0: Wow, the religious implications of that are pretty significant. I imagine the Pope probably had that in mind during his meeting. So what do you think is the strategy here?
1: Well, from day one in his position, the Pope has sought to promote interreligious, or what's called ecumenical cooperation with other faith groups. The Pope has at times spoken favorably of Protestantism, supporting a push to name a square in Rome after Protestant forefather Martin Luther, and even suggesting that Protestants should be able to receive communion in the Catholic Church. But arguably, out of all the faith groups, the Pope has spent the most time and effort reaching out to Islam. Pope Francis celebrated
0: Mass in the Muslim Majority United Arab Emirates. Francis said his main aim was to promote harmony and tolerance between Christians and Muslims. He also condemned war.
1: He has previously suggested that Islamic prayers be held in the Vatican, and in recent years he's met with senior Sunni Islamic leaders in nations such as the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Turkey and Bangladesh. Reaching out to the Islamic world has been a major focus for the Catholic leader, with Islam set to replace Christianity as the largest religion across the globe sometime during the 21st century. So while the Pope's visit to Iraq was primarily meant to encourage the nation's Christian population, it also deliberately served to strengthen ties with the Islamic world, as demonstrated by a decision to hold an interreligious prayer event in the ancient city of Ur, which is believed to be the birthplace of Abraham, a key prophet in both Christianity and Islam.
0: Yeah, you mentioned there that the Pope also really wanted to encourage Iraqi Christians. What do you mean by that? Can you give us a bit of background on that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, As I mentioned earlier, Iraq has had Christians living inside its borders for a significantly longer time than even much of Europe. But as a result of the immense political upheaval that's taken place in the last few years, the Christian population in Iraq has sadly shrunk quite significantly. Only 20 years ago, there were over a million Christians in the country, but now that figure sits closer to 250,000. Pope Francis has made sure to visit several symbolic sites that form an important part of the story behind the destruction of Iraq's Christian community. Touring the north of the country, he held religious ceremonies in and around churches that had been demolished by ISIS, a group which was known for its brutal treatment of Christians among other minority religions. Reaching back to his ecumenical rhetoric, the Pope referred to recent violence in Iraq as fratricide, suggesting that Christian-Muslim tensions were pitting brother against brother. His visit was therefore very clearly an attempt at reconciliation in one of the world's most war-torn regions. And of course, the Iraqi government itself has benefited greatly from the visit, demonstrating to the world that it's not only committed to upholding religious minorities within its borders, but that it also has the security credentials to protect the highest-ranking member of the Catholic Church for four days in a nation which still has a lingering ISIS insurgency. So all in all, a very big story with significant ramifications for Iraq, Islam and Catholic Christianity.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the area and whether or not this hopefully calms some of the tensions in Iraq.
1: Yeah, let's hope so.
0: Hugh, a couple of weeks back in our very first wrap-up, you and I chatted about President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil. And if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go check it out. But the story essentially concerned an effort by local indigenous people to prosecute Bolsonaro for crimes against humanity and ecocide. Well, in this last week, it looks like another political threat to Bolsonaro has emerged, and that is this guy. The person you just heard talking is former President of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula for short. And just last week, the Supreme Court of Brazil tossed out several criminal cases against Lula, including two convictions for corruption. And that is really significant because it allows him to run against Bolsonaro in the upcoming 2022 presidential election.
1: Wow. Okay. For those who don't know much about President Lula, can you give us a bit of a quick rundown?
0: Yeah, sure. So Lula was president of Brazil from 2003 to 2011, and he led a very left-leaning government that was very, very popular among poorer Brazilians. They really saw Lula, who was a former metal and steel worker, as one of their own. And by all accounts, Lula was pretty successful in raising a lot of poor Brazilians out of poverty. But you see, the Constitution of Brazil prevents any president from serving for more than two terms in a row, so he had to step down in 2011. And when he stepped down, he had an approval rating of 90%. That shows you just how popular he was. His successor was Dilma Rousseff. And as some of our listeners might remember, and you might remember too, Hugh, She was later impeached for budget violations and thrown out of office. Senators voted 61 to 20 to convict Rousseff for illegally using money from state banks to boost public spending in a separate vote. Her impeachment and her removal helped clear the way for Bolsonaro to run for president in 2018. Now, interestingly, Lula ran against Bolsonaro in the 2018 presidential election and was in fact expected to win. But. He was then convicted for corruption and barred from running just five weeks before the 2018 election took place. And as a result, Bolsonaro became
1: the front runner. and, as we all know, he won. So why was Lula convicted for corruption in the first place then?
0: Yeah, well, he was alleged to have been involved in what is now known as the largest corruption scandal in Brazil's history.
1: The car wash scandal
0: has left its mark on countries from Brazil to Peru. Business leaders, multinational corporations and politicians have been caught up in allegations ranging from bribery and money laundering to distorting the democratic process. It's all quite complicated, but essentially executives at a state-owned oil company were allegedly accepting bribes from other companies. And it was also alleged that these companies gave bribes to politicians, including President Lula, who reportedly received a seaside apartment as a bribe, and as a result, he was convicted and jailed for 12 years.
1: Well, given all that, why would the Supreme Court throw out the convictions this week?
0: Yeah, well, they did it mostly on technical grounds here, namely that the case was filed in the wrong jurisdiction, and therefore the entire criminal trial and all the proceedings were invalid. And it's important to note that as part of that, the Supreme Court didn't actually declare Lula innocent, so it's certainly not the end of the matter here. The government plans to appeal the decision, and if that appeal is accepted, Lula will be barred from office again. But if the appeal is rejected, prosecutors could also bring charges against Lula again, this time in the right jurisdiction. But regardless of all of that, there's long been speculation that the charges are politically motivated. The anti-corruption task force that originally investigated Lula was abolished just last year because of ethical and procedural irregularities. That's not a phrase you want to hear from a criminal investigative unit. And the federal judge who convicted Lula was later selected by Bolsonaro to be Brazil's justice minister. And here's where it gets even more interesting. It's also been revealed that the judge was coaching the prosecution and giving them tips throughout the trial, which understandably raises some really serious concerns here.
1: That's some pretty juicy tea, but what does all this mean for Brazil's situation?
0: Yeah, well, as I said, the fact that the convictions were thrown out means that Lula can, at present, run for president again. He's 75 years old, though, and he hasn't confirmed that he'll compete against Bolsonaro, but that is indeed what most people think he will do. Even President Bolsonaro thinks he's going to do that and has already started campaigning against Lula. And this all comes at a critical time for opposition parties in Brazil. So far, they failed to unite around a central candidate, but Lula just might solve that problem for them. So there is a chance that in 2022, we might be hearing about President Lula instead of President Bolsonaro.
1: Mmm, juicy. Well, there you go. That's all for this wrap up. Make sure you check out next week's in-depth episode where Emma will be interviewing Harry Rosen about the fight against anti-Semitism.
0: And of course, follow us, the Young Diplomat Society, on Facebook or Instagram for more great analysis and content. We're constantly updating the stories there, so go check
1: it out. And we'll see you next week. Bye.